I want to read you a verse of scripture from the verse, uh, the book of Hebrews, and we're going to come back to it later, but it uh, really applies to where, to where we're going tonight. In Hebrews 7 and verse 27, it's talking about Jesus. It says, he has no need like those high priests, referring to the high priests in the Old Testament, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, and then for those of the people. It says, he did this once for all when he offered up himself. In 2008, the Ryder Cup was held at Valhalla Golf Club in Louisville, Kentucky. Ryder Golf, the uh, Ryder Cup is a golf match between the U.S. and Europe. They play it every couple of years. And, uh, you know, if you look back in the last 20 years or so, Europe has typically won. There's been a couple of times where the U.S. has won, but uh, the Europeans are very good at golf, especially at team golf, and they, they normally win. Uh, the, the U.S. last one, I believe, is in 2016. But this year, going into 2008, uh, it really didn't look good for the Americans I mean, on paper. They had a young team. Uh, they had, Tiger Woods was who was playing very good golf at that time. He was, had been injured, so he was not on the team. And the Europeans looked strong as ever. They, uh, the last time the U.S. had won was 1999. And so the past six years, the Ryder Cup had been in Europe. So things didn't look very good, but they had a visionary leader, the U.S. did, named Paul Azinger, who was all, who has also been a professional golfer for a number of years. Well, years before this, Paul Azinger was watching a documentary one night on the Navy SEALs, and he, he was watching this, and he began thinking how he could apply those principles to building and leading the Ryder Cup team. And what he noticed was uh, one of the, the Navy officers came on and just said, our Navy SEAL officer said, you know, the, the real secret here is the bond that exists between the special forces. He said they eat together, they sleep in the same area, they, they work together, and they develop this bond so that they really know what the other person's thinking. And so they, they're tight. They have this close-knit group. And so Azinger began thinking about that, going, how can we apply that to golf? He said, you know, you, golf, you have... It's an individual sport. So these people, they're competing against others, uh, other individuals all year. And then you expect them one week out of, you know, two, every two years, one week out of that to come together and play as a team. And so he, did, he broke them down into what he called pods or families. So he, entered, he developed this pod system. And so he took these 12 guys and he broke them into three different pods of three groups of four. And he originally had nine players, and he told each one, there were three in each group, he said, you're going to get to select the last player for your group. And so he said, here's a list of 20 names. All of them have the green light. I've approved every single one. You just, you select the ones that you want. And so they did. So the players had ownership in it. Man, they got excited. Oh, man, this guy's from Kentucky. Let's get him, because he's going to be playing his home state. He'll be excited. And and that really proved to be an advantage for the American team. They ended up winning. It was, you probably remember watching. It was, it was incredible. It was a spirited event. And um, I, I, I would imagine they were underdogs, but they ended up winning. So tonight, I want to talk to you about a system. Not a pod system, but a sacramental system that was instituted by the Roman Catholic Church. And this is a significant portion, uh, a significant part of the Roman Catholic Church. The seven sacraments that we're going to look at tonight, they don't, they don't just exist in isolation from each other. They're really all connected. They're part of a system that was developed so that the specific touch 
of God's grace would be available to every person in every significant season of life, from birth all the way to death. You have these seven sacraments that go along the way. And I hope that I'm going to present it in such a way that you're going to think I'm Roman Catholic, okay? I, I, I hope I'm that faithful to, if you grew up Catholic, I hope you'll be thinking, yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's what I remember. Um, that, that's because if you do your history well, that, that's how it should work. Uh, but you know that I'm Southern Baptist, so. Uh, but I want to be faithful to what, to what they believe. So uh, my hope is that this, at the end, you will be encouraged on the sufficiency of Christ, but you'll also be equipped to interact with your Roman Catholic friends in a very compassionate way. You'll be more informed, but you'll be able to say, hey, I, I understand a little bit more now about why you believe the way you do. And, 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 and hopefully you can have some engaging conversations. So as you know, the last couple of weeks, pastor has been leading us through the last couple of months through church history. Recently, he's entered us into the Middle Ages, also known as the Dark Ages. We've talked about the rise of the papacies, also known as the rise of the Pope. And Leo, Leo the Great in the 400s is really seen as the first pope. And then you have a number of people after him that, that keep going. Well, in um, Pope Leo III, when he crowned Charles, uh, king of the Franks, also known as Char- Charlemagne, on, in the year 800 on Christmas Day, that revived the old Roman Empire. Okay, And so what it did, it meant that the pope had authority in the civil realm and now in the religious realm. And so there was this connection between church and state that became even stronger. And so not long after that, the Roman Catholic Church experienced its greatest years. Um, their golden years are typically seen between the year 1050 and 1215. That, that's really known as like the domination of the papacy during those years. And we'll talk about kind of and why that was so. The greatest pope during this time was a man named Innocent III. He lived from 1198 to 1216. He made the Pope God's only authoritative representative on the earth. He led in secular realm, the religious realm. He even excommunicated the King of England. I mean, he had that, that type of authority. And, uh, but near the end of his reign, he had the Fourth Lateran Council that we'll talk about in just a little bit in the year 1215. There were two key movements that really caused, helped cause the rise of the papacy. One of these were the monasteries that were built. They, they began building these monasteries, and when they did, they, they would attract, they would acquire these large portions of land. And so uh, they offered a resting place for the needy, a retreat place for scholars. It was a place of learning throughout the Dark Ages. And in addition to the monasteries, you had the Crusades. You've heard of the Crusades. It was an effort to get Jerusalem back from Muslim control. And so there were nine different Crusades over and over, uh, spread out over a number of years. And so the Roman Catholics, they, paid, they put a lot of emphasis on, hey, if you'll make this, this pilgrimage, you can have satisfaction for your sins. And so oftentimes people who went on the crusades would say, well, you know what, I may not ever make it back. So, you know, I'm just going to take money and here, you just, you just keep it in case I don't come back. And so this was financially beneficial for the Roman Catholic Church. So between monasteries, between these crusades, you had this just incredible power that was attributed to the Roman Catholic Church. The, the Pope's prestige increased. There was a man named Urban, the Pope Urban II, who was, who was the leader of the, the Pope during the First Crusade. And he had this international authority. You know, he, he, it appeared that he would just uh, order a secular army, hey, I want you to go over here and take Jerusalem, and it would happen. 
And, and that's, that's the kind of uh, authority that the Pope had during that time. But eventually, the Catholic Church began experiencing what is known as the decline of the papacy. There was a rise of the papacy, and now there was a decline. There was a decline in the morality of the priest because they enforced um, clerical celibacy. They could not marry. Some of those, uh, some, that didn't work out well for some, and there was immorality. And so, um, but they were still, even though they had involved in immorality, they were still allowed to lead the sacraments. And so for some, that just, it, it didn't, people didn't connect the dots. So you're living this way, but you're leading this way, and it, it, doesn't, it doesn't make sense. So uh, people began, began to be frustrated with the church. Uh, people began suffering because the, the church was not meeting their needs. Uh, the church had imposed so many ways to receive money, such as indulgences, which we'll talk about in a little, in a little bit, simony, which is the sale of a church office, commendations, which was an annual tax to the papacy. Um, it, it, all, it was just constant financial demands. They weren't meeting their needs. You had some immoral priest. You had all of this going on. And in addition to that, there was a growing sense of nationalism. You had people in France and England that were saying, you know what, I'm going to be more loyal to my country than I am to the, a pope. And so, but you put all of that together and you see this decline in the papacy. And so because of that, there were some in the Catholic Church that said, hey, we want reform. This is not working well. We want reform. We want, we want priests who are actually uh, living moral lives. And, and so they, they began calling. They wanted reformation. Now, during the golden years of the Roman Catholic Church, there was a man named Peter Lombard. He had an incredible impact on how the church thought about sacraments. In fact, everything that we talk about tonight, in some ways, can be traced back to Peter Lombard. In 11, the book, 11, the year 1150, he wrote a book called Four Books of Sentences. Four Books of Sentences. He gave a systematic treatment of the main doctrines of Christian theology in this book. Doctrine of God, eschatology. But in his last book, and this book became the standard of teaching in the universities. Um, so Paris and Oxford were the two uh, main universities in this time. And by the way, if you ever have a chance to go to Oxford, England, it is one of the most fascinating cities on this earth. Unbelievable. Just beautiful, incredible history there. Um, but that's one of the universities that during the 12th century um, began. But Peter Lombard, in his, in his last book of the four sentences, determined there were seven sacraments. Okay, that's, that's where this all traces back to him. And so... Um, and now they were not widely accepted at first, but over time, because his books were required reading in the universities, people began reading them, and over time they began accepting them, the, his views. So here's where the, the seven sacraments that he uh, pronounced. Baptism, and we're going to go kind of line by line, we'll talk about each one. Baptism, confirmation, <clears throat> the Eucharist, penance, anointing of the sick, matrimony, marriage, and holy orders. So this idea of seven had, been, had not really been clear prior to Peter Lombard. There were traces of it that, that go back to early church, and we'll, we'll talk about a little bit of, of that. But he was really a pioneer, and so um, he put it out there. Now, it didn't become official for a while, and we'll, we'll talk about that. But uh, he, he planted the seeds. So here are seven sacraments. Now, about, around 400 years later, it, it did become official teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. It happened at the Council of Trent, which was part of the Catholic Reformation. Um, although there was discussion prior to that, at the Second Council of Lyon in France in 1274, 
uh, and the, the Council of Florence in 1439. They talked about these seven sacraments. So before long, we're gonna, you're going to hear pastor talking about Reformation. Now, if you want to sound really smart, when someone says Reformation, you, you want to say, oh, which one are you talking about? Because there's multiple Reformations. There's a Protestant Reformation. There's an English Reformation. That's where the Anglican Church started. Uh, there is a, a Radical Reformation that centered on the Anabaptists. There's a Catholic Reformation that, was, that, that we're, we're talking about a little bit tonight. So, you know, when someone says that, you go, oh, that's great. You know, there were multiple ones. Which, which one are you referring to? And you'll just, you'll sound really intelligent. And so, um, but tonight we're, we're going to talk a little bit about the Catholic Reformation. Part, a major part of that was the Council of Trent. And it met from 1545 to 1563 in the imperial city of Trent, located in northern Italy. And they discussed a number of the, theological items. Of, you know, they didn't meet straight for 18 years. They would meet a little bit, then they'd have like four years off, and they met for a little bit of time, then have another four years off. And, you know, but from start to finish, it was, you know, 18 years or so, 17, 18 years. Um, <clears throat> but two significant decrees from the Council of Trent are or were, was they, there were seven sacraments and that justification is based on good works done through the partnership between grace and the believer. So this grace, the Roman Catholic Church believed, was transferred through the sacraments. And I'm going to give you just a kind of a little, kind of a bigger picture here of how important sacraments are that I'm going to take you one by one and, we're just, and try to walk you through it. Uh, so the Roman Catholic Church views the sacraments are closely related to each other. They can't be studied in seclusion from one another. <clears throat> now, before the time of Thomas Aquinas, Aquinas was, uh, if you grew up in a Catholic church, I'm sure you're familiar with him. He was a Catholic priest in the 13th century, had a major impact on Catholic theology. And um, if you went to a Catholic school, you're probably familiar with him. But before, before Thomas Aquinas... The definition of a sacrament was this. It was a sign of grace, a visible sign of invisible grace. That's what a sacrament was defined as, and that came from Augustine. And we we talked about Augustine several weeks ago. It was a sign of grace, a visible sign of invisible grace. Okay, It was just seen as a sign. However, when Thomas Aquinas Aquinas came along, he added that the sacraments actually cause grace. So it's more than a sign. Now this causes grace. And doesn't just represent it, it's actually a channel of grace now. And so the point for Roman Catholics is that there is a hidden, there's a hidden gift of grace that accompanies the elements known as sacraments. Okay, so it's not just the bread and wine. There is grace received or extended or transferred through those elements. The sacraments become the channel that God uses to dispense grace to man. All of these sacraments, Roman Catholics believe, were instituted by Christ or through the apostles, and they all convey grace from Christ to the church. So without participating in the sacraments, there's no true identity no, or no true unity with Jesus. Now, let me give you just some technical terms here. The term sacrament initially came from the Greek word mysterion, which means mystery. Eventually, mysterion was given the Latin name sacramentum, and baptism and the Lord's Supper were spoken of as sacramenta. The word sacramentum meant something set apart or sacred. That's all it meant. It was something that's set apart, something that's sacred. 
You know, remember, because initially it, it didn't mean to carry grace. It meant it was just a sign, something set apart. Over time, the sacraments began to carry the idea that they conveyed grace, which is why we speak of baptism and Lord's Supper as ordinances. That's why we, that's why we don't call them. Some people use them interchangeably, but others will say, no, they're, they're ordinances because we want to stay away from the idea that they convey grace. Does that make sense? That's why we say they're ordinances because Jesus ordained them. And Jesus actually participated in both of them, as you know, baptism and Lord's Supper. The sacraments uh, carry tremendous importance to Roman Catholics. But it's not just, and, and a lot of what I got here is from Roman Catholic sources. It's not just about the sacraments for them. In their own words, they have a sacramental worldview. These sacraments communicate God's presence and His activity on humanity's behalf. God is present in the visible and tangible works through them. Um, one source wrote this, Catholicism is not sacramental simply because it celebrates seven sacraments, but because it views the world through the lens of sacramentality. Um, Pope Paul VI, in his opening address in Vatican II in 1963, said the sacraments are a, a reality imbued with the hidden presence of God. And so as humans, as you know, we receive knowledge through our senses. And so God communicates, God's communication and presence to humanity is seen in these visible realities, these sacraments like uh, creation, humanity of Jesus. So the purpose of the, of the sacraments from the church, Roman Catholic Church's perspective is to help people grow spiritually. They've helped people have deeper communion with God and with the church. And so they cause faith, they encourage faith, and they increase faith. Now, we're almost to the place where we're going to start walking through these. Uh, the Council of Trent, this is what they said. They declared Jesus instituted all seven sacraments, and if someone denies this, let him be, let him be anathema. That came directly from uh, the Council of, of Trent in their, their official document. So to them, the sacraments are more than sacred signs. They were necessary for salvation, and they carried grace with them. That, is that, did that make that clear enough? Okay. They're a visible form of invisible grace. Okay. So now the Council of Trent also stated the cause of this grace is clearly God. So man does not contribute anything to this. God is the one who gives this grace, but he gives it through the elements, through these sacraments. Okay. Now the sacraments can be organized into three different groups. You have the sacraments of initiation, which is baptism, confirmation, and the Eucharist. You have the sacraments of healing, which is penance and anointing of the sick. And then you have sacraments of vocation and commitment, which is marriage and holy orders. Okay, those are the three groups that they're organized into. And so now we're going to talk about the first group. So the first sacrament of initiation, which signals entrance into the church, was baptism. Through baptism, original sin and all acts of sin previously committed were forgiven. Those who are baptized are made joint heirs with Christ, yet they retain their sin nature and propensity to sin. That's, that comes straight from the Council of Trent. So that, that teaches baptismal regeneration. So you, you could ask someone, hey, have you ever been saved? Yeah, I was baptized. Have you ever heard that? Yeah. So the key biblical, do you, do you know what biblical text they use to support the view? Well, it's the same one that we use. It's in Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4. See, it doesn't, it doesn't, it's not so important whether you're using the Bible or not. It's how are you interpreting the Bible? There's heresies all through the years. Have you, they use the Bible 
Arius used the Arius preached from the Bible. He was a preacher. But how do you interpret the Bible? And so baptism, in their view, confers membership into the church and incorporation in Christ. The proper mode of baptism for Roman Catholics is sprinkling. And um, you remember we, we, Augustine talked about um, infant baptism and affirmed that it removed the guilt of original sin. And so uh, I think this is so interesting. At baptism, the priest will ask the infant if he or she is willing to renounce Satan, if they believe various points of the creed, and if they are willing to be baptized. And obviously, they, they can't respond. So they have what's called a sponsor or godparents that are there, and they respond in behalf of the child. And, you know, they say, well, yes, he, th- this is how this happens. And so um, then infants then, in their view, become Christian and heir of, of heaven. So next, the next sacrament is confirmation. Now that they've been baptized, now initially confirmation would follow closely right there behind baptism, but um, years later it began spread out to age like seven, and and then or age twelve or thirteen. Um, whereas baptism offered, um, uh, Roman Catholics believe by the sacrament of confirmation, the Holy Spirit comes to indwell the person. Okay, so you're saved at, at baptism in their view, but you don't receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes at confirmation. And I'll, I'll tell you why they believe that. Whereas baptism offered forgiveness to the person, confirmation provided strengthening in the faith. They have two key verses of Scripture that they base this on. Acts 8.17 and Acts 19.6. In Acts 8, the apostles at Jerusalem heard that uh, Samaria had received the word of God. So they sent Peter and John to them, and they prayed for those in Samaria that, that, that they might yet receive the Holy Spirit because they had not yet received the Spirit. And so Peter and John lay hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. In Acts 19, Paul came to Ephesus, and he found some disciples who had not yet heard of the Holy Spirit. Paul laid his hands on them, and they, the Holy Spirit came on them. And so because of that, they see two different two different. Um, uh, moments in the Christian's life. There's salvation, and then the Holy Spirit comes later, in, in, in their view. Until the 13th century, uh, confirmation occurred shortly after baptism, but at the Council of Cologne in 1280, confirmation was postponed, at least until the child was age, was age seven, and adults were confirmed immediately after baptism. Uh, age of confirmation ultimately does not matter because the sponsor is required and the sacrament works without reference to any understanding by the child. The, uh, the bishop anoints the candidate with oil, and the, vigil, and the individual is confirmed. The confirmation prayer asks for the sevenfold gifts of the Holy Spirit, and the prayer seeks, uh, speaks of being sealed with the Spirit. After this, the child is received into the duties and responsibilities of the life of the church. So you have baptism, confirmation, and then the final sacrament, the third sacrament, which is in the um, sacraments of initiation, is the Eucharist. Now, the term Eucharist comes from the Greek word that means thanksgiving, and it's used in Matthew's account, you remember, in the, of the Lord's Supper in Matthew 26. And um, uh, it's sometimes called Mass in Roman Catholic Church, oftentimes. The church, term Mass comes from a Latin word called Missa, which means dismissal, and referred to the closing blessing at the end of a service. Uh, during the second and third centuries, the Passover meal disappeared, but the prayer of thanksgiving remained part of the Lord's Supper, or what they call uh, the Eucharist. So during this prayer, 
um, that when the priest prays over the bread and wine, and the, the Roman Catholic Church believes that the elements are transformed uh, into the body and blood of Christ. This became the official Roman Catholic position at the Fourth Lateran Council in 1215. The body and blood of Jesus are truly contained in the sacrament under the forms of bread and wine. So the bread and wine are transubstantiated, they're transformed into the body and blood of Jesus. Now, the, uh, so the Council of Trent in the 1500s affirmed what the Fourth Lateran Council over 400 years earlier, over 300 years earlier, had, uh, had uh, declared. So the, there were two key components to the Eucharist for Roman Catholics. The first was the, the, the elements transformed. The second was the sacrificial nature of the, of the Mass. The Council of Trent determined that the Mass is a true sacrifice of Jesus, just as he was when he was on the cross. So every time you do Mass, it's a re-sacrificing of, of the Lord Jesus. who He's paying for the sins of those who are alive now and for the dead in Christ who are not yet fully cleansed. And so the Mass is a central feature of the Roman Catholic worship service, and it's viewed by Catholics as the primary act by which, by which Christians worship God. Now, if you've been in a Catholic church, you'll, you'll recognize just visually that that is the center of the stage. That is the center of the, of the worship center is, is the table. And uh, when the Protestant Reformation came along, they said, no, 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 the center is the preaching of the Word of God. So now the pulpit is the center. And so um, that's, that's the way it should be. And so in, entrance into the church community comes through the sacraments of initiation that we just talked about. But that's only the beginning of a process. Christians, are, in their view, are still prone to sin. They're prone, uh, susceptible to sickness and death. And so in their view, they, were, they look back at the Bible, Matthew 5, 48, and Jesus said, hey, you're to be perfect as, my heavenly, heavenly, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And so they said, man, we've got to have more sacraments that are going to help you be perfect. And so that's where penance and anointing of the sick came in. The sacrament of penance is also known as reconciliation and provides forgiveness of sins that are committed after baptism. It applies to those individuals whose bond with the church and ultimately with God has lessened due to sin. One scripture that they use to support this view is 1 John 1, 9, which we often use. You confess your sins, God's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us. But they also use John 20, 22 and 23, where Jesus breathed on his disciples and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. And then they looked at how Jesus um, healed the paralytic at Capernaum. There's a mention of forgiveness there. And so they, they said, well, hey, sin is expected to be confessed and it's expected to be forgiven in the church. So initially, sins were confessed openly to the church. Anybody want to do that tonight? They, that, they would just come in and they would, they would confess their sins to the church. And so um, uh, Tommy Nelson said years ago, he said, uh, if, we knew, if, if we knew what God knew about you, he said, we wouldn't let you in. He said, uh, but if you knew well, what God knows about me, you wouldn't let me in either. You wouldn't, you wouldn't listen to me. And so they would, they would come in, they would confess their sins before the church. But the church was growing, and over time, they just, that would take up the whole service. And so that's where they began going to the priest instead of confessing openly to the church. And so um, confession to the priest was made law in the church by the Fourth Lateran Council. 
in uh, the year 1215, the early church father, Tertullian, called the sacrament of reconciliation the second plank thrown to a drowning man after the first plank of baptism. The goal of the sacrament is to obtain pardon through God's mercy and be reconciled with the church where they've wounded by their sins. Now, a person who's, who's, who's undergoing penance must first be moved inwardly by sorrow for his or her sin or have a proper fear of the consequences of their sin. Now, once you have those proper motives in place in their view, the person is to go to a priest and make confession to the priest. Now, the priest, in turn, requires a candidate to give satisfaction for his or her sin. Once these steps were completed, the, the priest would pronounce absolution and pardon would be dispensed to the person. Sin, as the Roman Catholics asserted, had eternal consequences and temporal consequences. Satisfaction gave substantial evidence that the candidate was truly sorry for his or her sins. Uh, before the 10th or 11th century, satisfaction was typically displayed through some form of personal piety, uh, most notably by making like a religious pilgrimage. Well, I'll just go to Jerusalem. I'll just, I'll go wherever you tell me to. And it's going it, to, it, again, it's a work, but it's to show that there's this sorrow in my heart over this sin. However, after the 11th century, temporal consequences of sin could be relieved in whole or in part by the use of, does anybody know? Indulgences, indulgences. And indulgence was the reduction of punishment because of temporal sin. It appears the first use of indulgences was in southern France around the year 1016. Years later, French Pope Urban II, who remember was um, the Pope during the First Crusade, he promised full indulgence to all who engaged in the First Crusade. After the 11th century, it became possible to purchase indulgences. That's why Luther was so upset years later. One of the reasons to purchase indulgences in order to provide satisfaction for temporal sins instead of taking a pilgrimage to show satisfaction for penance. The church could offer these indulgences because it possessed a treasury of merits donated to it by the good works of Christ and his saints. But what would happen if these temporal sins were not paid for in this life? Well, that's where the doctrine of purgatory comes in. And it, goes, it really goes all the way back to Gregory the Great uh, in, in the late 600s. He was, he was the bishop of Rome from 590 to 604. He did some really good things in Rome. He organized the distribution of food to the poor, built, rebuilt the aqueducts and the defense structures of the city. He negotiated directly with the Lombards and secured peace for Rome. He was a religious leader, but he really functioned as the king of Rome. Um, but he emphasized some things that, would, that would, you would raise your eyebrows at. And uh, one of those, Augustine had, Augustine had, had, um, had pondered if there was a place that, some, that Christians would go besides heaven, not hell, but there, if there was another place. He just wondered it. But Gregory the Great took it a step further. He said, no, there is a place that you go, and, and that place is, is, is purgatory. Now, if you enter purgatory, you're eventually going to get to heaven, but you've got to be cleansed from some of your sins. And that, that thought gave the rise. Uh, Gregory the Great assumed it was fact. That thought gave the rise to the doctrine of purgatory. Do you know the verse that they use for biblical justification? It's one that you've read a number of times probably. 1 Corinthians 3.15. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. 1 Corinthians 3.15. That's the, in their view, that's the, that's the biblical verse. 
Now, the second sacrament of healing is anointing of the sick, or also known as extreme unction. The biblical text behind this sacrament is James 5.14. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. The priest anoints the eyes, ears, nose, lip, palms of hands, and feet to remove sins contracted through these organs. It's not the oil that heals, but it's the prayer offered to God uh, for healing and forgiveness of sins that will, that will uh, bring healing. The goal of this sacrament is to restore the sick member not only to physical health, but to spiritual health with the church. Uh, by the end of the 12th century, the sacrament became more and more for those who were dying, although, although its original tent, intent was for the sick in hopes they, w- they would be made well. The Council of Trent defined the anointing of the sick as a true sacrament, and that though it could be used for those who are dangerously ill and close to death. Um, <clears throat> Interestingly, President uh, John Kennedy had this sacrament performed four times on him throughout his life. Uh, one of the times he had had spinal surgery, and, um, and, and he received this sacrament. Uh, this, the effect of this sacrament was purification of sin, comfort and strength of soul, and confidence in God's mercy. Uh, this sacrament forgives sins, heals the effects of sin, and gives comfort and spiritual strength and provides confidence in God's mercy. So you have the sacraments of initiation, the second set we just talked about, and then the third set is um, the sacraments of vocation and commitment. Sacraments of vocation and commitment. And those are marriage and holy order. Marriage is considered a sacrament by the Roman Catholic Church because it is a calling to live in an intimate union with another and symbolizes the union of Christ and His church. Marriage builds up the church by helping the spouses to attain to holiness and raises children to foster new citizens of human society. We see in the Bible that marriage was created by God and was seen as good because man was no no longer alone. Augustine believed the purpose of marriage was only for procreation. So he believed that even our sexual desires are, are the inappropriate effects of original sin. But procreation is tolerable because God has commanded that we be fruitful and multiply. But Augustine did affirm that marriage has three values, fidelity, offspring, and sacrament. That's where this this traces all the way back to him. So marriage is a sacrament for Augustine because it signifies on earth the future unity that God's people will experience in heaven. In the medieval period, a man named Peter Abelard, he was a French philosopher and theologian, he stated that marriage was a sacrament, but it did not cause someone to be saved. In 1208, in the profession of faith offered by Pope Innocent III, marriage was labeled as a true sacrament. Sacrament. This teaching was reaffirmed in 1274 and then 1439 in Florence and ultimately at the Council of Trent in 1563. Um, Trent made it mandatory that Catholic marriages occur in the presence of a priest. And uh, of course, the Protestant reformers came along and they said, hey, marriage is sacred, it's created by God, but it's not a sacrament because there's no grace that is transferred uh, through marriage. Now, the final of the seven sacraments. And it falls within the sacraments of vocation and commitment is holy order. The sacrament of holy order is conferred upon the offices of bishop, priest, and deacon in the Roman Catholic Church. Special grace is conferred upon these men when they are ordained to serve in these roles. These ordained ministers build up the church as they imitate Christ, who is priest, prophet, and king. The term order comes from the early church father, Tertullian. He lived from 160 to 220. He used the term, Latin term ordo to apply to the clergy, 
as a whole, uh, probably in light of Psalm 110, 110 verse 4, which is talking about the, the order of Melchizedek, the priesthood of Melchizedek. And so this order included various levels of ministers, from bishop, priest, and deacon. Uh, the bishop was also called the overseer. The priest came from the term presbyter. And uh, the deacon was usually called a minister or a servant. <clears throat> servant. In looking at the Old Testament, the Roman Catholics saw the Levites as the office of professional priests. The priest was an intermediary between God and man. And so you look at the New Testament, the Roman Catholics saw, hey, there's elders, there's deacons, there's overseers. Uh, these are the offices of the church. And so there's a threefold division in leadership. And so um, you remember during the early Middle Ages, we've already talked about, there was uh, priestly and royal, uh, the civil and, and, and religious authority was welded together. And so priests were ordained to lead and minister the sacraments, but also for certain tax collecting purposes. And so over time, this gap developed between the priests who had the position of authority and other, the layperson in the church who did not have that authority. And so uh, this is interesting. One source said that in the early Middle Ages affected how the church was organized and how it was operated. In the 6th century, an author from Syria wrote documents under the name of uh, Dionysius the Areopagi. Now, does anybody know where that person is mentioned in the Bible? If you do, you're, you know your Bible pretty well. Acts 17.34. He was the, the Athenian convert of Paul. So this, this writer in the 6th century writes a document under this person's name. And so when they find these documents, they think, oh, my goodness, this goes all the way back to the 1st century. This is, this is the person that was converted under Paul. So because it, it went back that far, it was considered very weighty. It had a lot of influence. It had a lot of authority. And so this document proposed a hierarchical view of the church and modeled the, uh, the, it modeled the, the structure in the church the way this person thought about the universe. This person said, hey, in the order of angels, there's, there's these different orders. So there must be these three orders in the church as well, bishops and priests and deacons. And so there's this structure. And the laity received grace from the clergy. So I tell you all of this. To, to explain that there's you see this beginning of a divide between the clergy and the laity. Are you with me? Okay, so the, the clergy, they're the more spiritual. They have the authority. They have the anointing. They have the sacrament of grace upon them. But the laity, they, they don't. They, they, they don't they're, they're, they're in two different, two different camps. And so this, this divide continues to, to grow. And the Protestant reformers come along and say, no, no, no. There, we're all, there was a priesthood of believers. We're all priests. In fact, if you go all the way back to, to Exodus, the Lord talks about Israel, there would be a kingdom of priests to me. Okay, so that, that the reformers uh, tried to correct that. <clears throat> okay, now we've looked at the Roman Catholic sacramental system. Let's remind ourselves quickly as Protestants what we believe about the ordinances. And uh, we're not using the word sacrament, Pastor. We're using, we're using the word ordinances. Again, we use the term ordinances because baptism and Lord's Supper were ordained by Jesus. They're significant, symbolic, but they do not convey grace. Uh, Jesus participated in both of these. He said, remember Matthew 20, 28, 19, to baptize people. He himself was baptized. Then Luke twenty two nineteen, Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me when he, when he had the bread. So he participated in those. So we do these because Jesus said to do them. So they're, they're visible signs of Jesus' special presence to 
his people, and they also preached the gospel to the congregation. They, they symbolized the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. All right, you, you've hung with me this long. Let me give you just a few uh, application points uh, for us tonight. First, let us celebrate the sufficiency of Christ's death. Let us celebrate the sufficiency of Christ's death. Remember that verse I read to you earlier, Hebrews 7? He has no need like those high priests, those in the Old Testament, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. So, my friend, we can celebrate the fact that all of our sin has been paid for. We don't have to live in, in fear, like, well, what if I sin now that, I've, now that I'm saved? And, man, do I need to receive some other special grace? You are already forgiven. Every sin was nailed to the cross in Christ. Now, we need to confess it to him to restore the fellowship, but the relationship is there. The relationship is permanent. And so we confess in order to maintain the deep unity and the fellowship with Christ, but we're, we're forgiven Years ago, there was um, Dr. Lewis Perry Chafer was the founding president at Dallas Seminary, and I heard when I was a student there that sometimes he would he would there just be this hush um, in the in the class, and he would look at the students and say, "Guys, God is satisfied." We tell him, "God is satisfied," and that that's the beauty of of it saying Jesus died once for all. God is satisfied. There's no need for Oh, he's, he doesn't have to be re-sacrificed. He's already been sacrificed. He's paid for our sins. Second, let us be grateful that our salvation is received, not achieved. Let us be grateful that our salvation is received, not achieved. You remember Ephesians 2 well, when it starts out saying, but you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God made you alive in his mercy by Christ Jesus. Uh, he made us alive. So it's something that we've received we don't have to keep trying to pay for it or to earn good work. So if I do this, I'll please him. We've already received it in his mercy. So we can, we can rejoice in that. And so our intimacy with God now doesn't come through a sacrament. It comes through obeying him. And it comes through spending time with him in his word. That's where our intimacy and our, we grow in our faith when we do what he tells us to do. And then finally, have compassionate conversations with your Roman Catholic friends. Have compassionate conversation with your Roman Catholic friends. I hope you feel more prepared now and more you can engage in, in conversation. At least now you know some of the history behind these sacraments. But remember what 2 Timothy 2.24 says. This is the very first part. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. In June of 2013, Chris Reynolds went to open uh, his June PayPal email statement to check his balance. Chris used PayPal to sell auto parts on eBay. And the most he had ever made using PayPal is a little over $1,000 on a set of vintage BMW tires. However, this day in June, he opened up his, his PayPal account and he saw he had been credited $92 quadrillion. Can you imagine? 92 and just all these other numbers just going on and on. Well, you can imagine he was quite surprised. And uh, he, he must have logged out and thought, but well, I need to log back on and just see if this is real. And he logged back on and it said zero. It was a mistake. And, and, and the zero was accurate. That's what he actually had in his account. 
So it's kind of discouraging. But so PayPal came out and said, hey, I'm, you know, we're sorry. We, we made this mistake. And he, and he was gracious. But the good news is when we place our faith in Christ, we don't have to worry about losing anything. All the righteousness of Christ has been credited to our, to our account, and it never disappears. And you don't have to try to earn it. And you don't have to, I've got to do something else. And I've got to, now we hope you'll do things like spend time with the Lord, obey him and share the gospel. But that you do that because you want to, because you're filled, you're filled to the fullness of God and you want to share what God's done in your life. But you don't do it to earn his favor.